clever. Holy Spirit prompts you to pray. I want to keep encouraging you in that as well um, as we keep pushing on in, in worship and praise. And especially uh, relevant today uh, as we look at Revelation 6 and 7. I need to warn you that this is probably uh, another one of those, certainly I, uh, another one of those um, that could probably take another, what, five sermons to do if we were to go through properly. It's, it's so packed, utterly packed, full of stuff, uh, packed a lot in a lot of ways with um, what all these things mean. Uh, and it's very difficult sometimes to get across uh, very quickly uh, what all these numbers mean. Um, but we'll try, uh, and hopefully we might find a, a time that we'll actually go through these in more detail. Um, but hopefully you receive the uh, key things that I sent out to you. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and uh, we, uh, as it says here, I'll, I'll read out the text that I sent just to give you an overview of what's happening. Uh, the largest select, uh, section of Revelation extends from chapter 4 uh, to the end and describes events that are to take place after this. Chapter 5 focuses on a scroll containing God's judgment on sin and a search for someone to open it. Only Jesus is worthy to open it. And when Jesus took the scroll from God, he received praise from every creature in heaven and on earth. And now in chapter 6, our attention focuses on the events that transpire when Jesus opens six of the seven seals one at a time. Chapter 7, which is what most people refer to as an interlude, uh, maybe an intermission, whatever word you want to use, that bit in between uh, number six and number seven of the seals. Um, an angel seals 144,000, saved to represent a symbol of completeness. And we'll uh, look at very quickly, briefly, why that is a not a literal count, but a, a number of completeness. Uh, very important. Uh, and there's all sorts of theories and ways you can look at the seals, the, uh, the bowls and the trumpets. And I'll go into that briefly and try and explain the not very good slides that I've put together to show you all the different theories as well. So I'll explain that as we go as well. So what is this about? We're looking at the, the judgment that is to take place uh, of, of God on earth by Jesus Christ who opens or breaks, as it were, each of the seven seals in total, and each representing a judgment on earth. Uh, you have to be okay with the fact that these judgments are done by God. These are judgments sent to the earth, its inhabitants, and all the people, uh, because uh, we deserve judgment. And the only people that are protected, uh, and I say protected loosely because for a time, um, people, even Christians, will be treated even worse uh, than, than many of the people that are mentioned in these books, in these two chapters. Uh, in fact, going as far as killing uh, them uh, just, just for believing in Jesus. And that will be a serious, serious time. Uh, throughout this whole book, and also in our lives of those who believe in Jesus, uh, we need to understand and always know that he is on the throne. That is why we went through last time, and to reassure uh, ourselves, that God is on the throne and God is initiating these judgments for the right reasons for his plan. Uh, and also that we need to be sure that no matter what you hear described in the troubling times of this tribulation, as it's called, uh, that God is on the throne. That you can be sure of. Uh, the same and only God is fully able to save those who trust 
and believe in him. That full assurance through faith in Jesus Christ is why we start is why we start with that. And the first verse I think here that I've I've picked, I think really describes, helps us to see um, the encouragement, the faith that we need to have in Jesus. And it's from uh, Philippians 1, 20 to 21. And it says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is to gain. Can I just translate that? Whatever happens, you are saved by Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Whether you live or whether you die, you are going to be in Christ. To live is to Christ, to die is to gain. I gain through dying. What a weird opposite thing that the world just cannot deal with. To die is to gain. But what I want us to understand as we study the verses in our chapters is that what happens here is not to be liberally applied to what is happening now. Many people use these to say that we're properly at seal five uh, or maybe seal six or seal four or seal three. Uh, I'm telling you now that you will know when the seals begin to open. There will be no mistaking when Jesus opened the seals. Uh, and, and that, for me, is where I stand. There are many people who think that many of the seals have, have started already. Uh, but as we read through the seven seals, uh, sorry, the six in this one, at least, we'll go through six of the seals, we'll get a sense that there's a sample of these things happening today. Uh, well, war happens today, famine happens today, plagues, natural disasters all happen today. However, those are isolated events and those are things that we need to understand are because of a broken, sinful world. It happens because the world is fractured and it behaves in such a way that it, it and we behave in such a way that we cause many of these isolated events. Those things happen in isolation in many countries around the world because of a broken world and a sinful people. Even covid cannot be taken as one of the broken seals as much as some people want to. It, it is not. And we'll see why. We must be careful not to use revelation in a way that distracts from the original issue or original sin. In studying this, I'm, I go greatly concerned with the use of these seals to distract us from what is our problem in the sense of original sin that we caused sin and brokenness to enter the world when we rebelled against God. But we must remember that no one is righteous and that the world behaves in a way that is broken due to our sinful act towards God. What we learn today should help us to understand that when these times come, I believe they will come as almost a climactic set of events. You can see that many actually, in whatever order you think these happen, uh, most people uh, believe that these happen in a, in a set of events that will just trigger and then will go one by one seal by seal, as it were, as we go through. Um, and, but ultimately, they will bring glory to God, and they will both bring judgment, but also an end to judgment as well. Today is for us to understand that when the times come, we will know by the way they've been marked out in Revelation, not because we need to, to fit in or to ram in some random unrelated events today. That's not the purpose of it. It is so we know that this is a time when it starts that we will know that it starts. So 
those before, we'll go through section by section, discover what in context each section has to say about what will happen. Uh, what we do have to do, unfortunately, and these are my own slides of what uh, the way you might want to read uh, the, um, the seals with the trumpets and the bowls. Uh, I'll, the first one, I've not got that on the screen, but the first one uh, is one where they're all linear. So you have the seals, you have the trumpets, and then you have the bowls. Uh, those are the, 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 the sets of things that we'll see over these next Uh, over these next couple of weeks as we uh, look at all those different things. Uh, so that's probably the popular timeline, is that it runs from seal one to the end of bowl seven. Okay, so they, they believe that there's one long linear line. Uh, however, in reading the text, I and some others don't believe that to be the case. There's, I believe there's more of a, a mixture going on and a much more of a, uh, a probably a bit more complex way of looking at it. So this one is alternate, I've called it alternative timeline one. I'll tell you, I'll explain how it works. It goes from seals one to six, and enduring seal seven, so always the seals, let me give a principle here, the seals are the overarching events of what happens. Within the seals is then the trumpet and the bowls. Now there's different opinions about how the trumpet and the bowls work. The reason why this is hotly debated is because uh, they have the same things happening in each one. Uh, almost one, one to one, two to two, three to three, four to four, they're almost matched. Not quite, but they're almost matched. So this is kind of alternative one. Seal one to six takes place, and I'll go through what all that means. And then during seal seven, trumpet one to six occurs. And at the end of seal six, uh, the bowls of one to six begin. But at the end of the seventh seal, it all comes together. I hope that picture makes sense. It all aligns on the last one. So the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl uh, all happen together because we see that in, in the text as well. Uh, the second alternative uh, is something I think that I'm more inclined to think is, is the way it goes. The only difference here is that trumpets and bowls happen uh, at the same time during seal seven. Uh, and I'm going to tell you why this is important and why it's not important <laughs> after I've finished. Alternative timeline three, which I, I kind of thought about, uh, there is, as we'll discover um, later on, trumpets five and six, which are called the woes, the three woes of what happens on earth. And perhaps maybe uh, that's when the bowls take place. Uh, but we'll go get all through this over these coming weeks. Uh, but I have to give you uh, an outline of what it might look like. I can't remember if I added my one in. I did. So it's between these two. Let me say this. The reason why this is, in, this, this is important is because when we look at things like this in the Bible and then we go through each chapter, we need to make sure we're, we're consistent all the way through. Because if we don't, what happens is when I go to chapter what are we on now? So it'll be six and seven. So if I go to chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, you start to lose consistency with what you're reading to start with. Does that make sense? So you have to remain consistent all the way through whatever path you choose. That's the point what we look at here. So we're kind of looking at the fact and, and the way I'm approaching it, certainly and many others approach it, is that the seals are the overarching uh, uh, thing that happens, the events that happen 
and then within them you've got the trumpet and the bars. Uh, why it's, it's not important is because it won't change whether you're saved or not. Okay, It won't change that. Whether you believe in one system or the other, it doesn't change anything. Uh, it still remains important that people choose Jesus. Uh, and whatever happens here is in God's will and his plan. Uh, so uh, even when you get into pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, whether we're raptured before, raptured during, or raptured after, uh, it doesn't matter actually because you need to believe in Jesus. And whatever happens is in God's will. Is that okay? I've just given you all of that and then said, just believe in Jesus, whatever. Okay? But in, in teaching, we need to be consistent and show a way that we're going to approach text just so you get an idea of where we're going so that that's kind of why it it matters uh, and i think that is i think it's a it's a good point <laughs> so the way i'm approaching this is from the point of view uh, is that the seven seals are overarching uh, of what happened with the account of the trumpets and the bowls during the seventh seal so this week let's look at what the six of the seven seals are and what they mean so our first set of verses uh, is uh, i believe it's one to two yeah and it says, I watched uh, as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Who's the Lamb? It's Jesus. Uh, then I heard one of the four living creatures saying a voice like thunder, Come, shouting. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So Jesus uh, opens the first of the seven seals. And when he opens this, what he unleashes is, in effect, the devil. He's, he's unleashing the devil on the earth. It's now his time to do that. Uh, and Jesus has said that that is the judgment on the earth for seal one, uh, that he will unleash this rider. Um, now, the reason we, we know what we want to look at here is that this rider, because he's quite similar, I don't know if you've read other parts of Revelation, he's very similar to Jesus. Jesus has a white horse, uh, and he rides with the church who are dressed in white, in white robes. Uh, and lo and behold, it shouldn't be a surprise that the devil is a pretend Jesus. He's trying to pretend to be Jesus. He's a fake Jesus. He's a counterfeit. So he comes looking like Jesus, but it isn't Jesus. And this is where, when we go into this, what we're going to find is that he starts to deceive people. And the reason why he deceives people is because he's using these tricks. He is using these, these uh, elements, as it were, that Jesus would use to trick people into thinking he is a Messiah or the Messiah even. Now, the reason we know, as I said, that this is a kind of fake Jesus and that he's pretending to be Jesus is actually in Revelation 19, further on when we get there, 11 to 16, I saw heaven standing open and there before me, this is when he, Jesus returns, was, uh, was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Uh, that's Jesus. That's calling him because, remember what I said before, capital W, capital G, it's it's Jesus. It's, this is actually Jesus, not the words of work. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule 
them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So the, the devil is trying to pretend to be Jesus. That's what we're looking at here. But this wannabe, this pretender, he's got purposes of his own. He wants to rule and reign, not for God, but as our text says, he is bent on conquest. Uh, the very particular words used is bent on conquest. He is crazy with conquest. He is insane with conquest. It is, he is so in love with himself that he is bent on conquest, that he craves it so much. Then we carry on, and it says in Revelation 6, 3-4, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So who is this blood red rider? He's going to bring on war. And here it is. He's, what's really interesting about this is that he's not going to start the war because the text tells us what's going to happen. What he's going to do instead is he's going to remove peace from man. He's going to remove peace from the world. And what that will do, when we don't have peace, what do we do? Do we lash out? Do we get angry? This is what is happening. So he won't start wars, but he will remove peace from the world to create the environment for a sinful man to start war. It's very... It's, it's very particular and very specific. He won't be obvious in starting a war. He will just remove that sense of maybe temporary peace that we have today, that sense of worldly peace, I would say, rather than kingdom peace. But he'll take that away, and everyone will feel like everyone's under attack. And that, that's kind of how it will work. Peace will go entirely in our hearts because he will remove this sense of peace. And it will influence people to kill each other. The purpose of this is that if people are, are hating each other, they will be distracted from who the real enemy is. Hating one another is a way of distracting from who is actually causing the argument. I'm sure there must have been, I've seen it on programs, but I've had friends who are what we call stirrers, uh, troublemakers, People that stir up trouble between two other friends uh, who might say something that one friend didn't want another friend to know about. This is the troublemaker. This is the sense of the devil troublemaking, starting to say, you know what he said about you? To world leaders, you know what he said? You know what that, that other country thinks about you? I think you're weak. It's all this temptation, all this temptation to to make people who are in power to respond and to react. The devil will only want, want only people to worship him and hate each other. We move on, verses uh, 5 to 6, says, When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. The rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. 
Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four creatures, saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. The black horse. The black horse represents famine. It represents food rationing. If you don't know what the scales mean, that's what he's doing. It's a representation. So the scales are to measure out food. And only people uh, who, will, uh, who will accept the rationing from will, will get any food. Only people, in a sense, who will bow down to him will get anything. And yet even that will be minuscule. It will be, it will be so uh, minor. And let me say this. Uh, as I said, we do have famines today. This is entirely different. This is on such a scale uh, that the world will be in famine. Uh, the reason why we can't apply this to now is because even just one example of our very own country uh, that we're, we're apparently, within the last couple of weeks, have uh, got rid of 100,000 pigs because we can't get rid of them. We can't sell them. Now, that isn't a famine. We are in an abundance of food at this point. Now, there are countries in famine. We don't deny that. But this is on an entirely different scale. The whole world will have nothing, and it will be under the control of these uh, four riders, these four horses. So there'll be no free access to food, and now it's famine that will also be used to control people, but also inject chaos, cultivate a selfish desire to survive at all costs, just to get a glimpse of our, of our hearts, a mere whiff of a shortage of petrol. And look how we lose our minds. That, that's just because someone said it on the news. Do you understand what I'm saying? If that's, if that's our reaction, because we are so for ourselves, we, we do want to protect ourselves and our family, what's going to happen when there really isn't anything? Not only will we scramble for food, we will probably do anything to get that food. The reason why I'm, I'm, I'm being quite extreme about this and trying to describe it is because I'm saying it's not now. I'm saying it's coming, but it's not now. It will be on a scale that you've never seen. The text in, our, in the reading goes on to say, I think it's later on, that it says that it will be like no other time. Earthquakes that will happen like no other earthquake. These two pounds a week for a day's wages, six pounds of barley, for a day's wages, uh, these prices are about 12 times higher than normal. <clears throat> it means that it would cost a day's wages to buy the ingredients for a loaf of bread. And it describes, as one commentator put it, a time of famine when life will be reduced to the barest necessities. It's where we're sort of, some of us have been praying this morning uh, about harvest, about food, about the, the, the abundance of what God gives us. And now, you know, we're looking at this and saying, we really do have to be grateful for God's mercy, for God's grace, God's abundance. We often see great famine in the world today, yet, yet, as some of the stats will show, fewer people suffer from hunger today than 100 years ago. But understanding the world's precarious ecological balance, it wouldn't take much to plunge many into the kind of uh, lack of food, the scarcity of food and inequity mentioned here in the Bible. 
and yet it says at the end, do not damage the oil and the wine. What is that? What does that mean? The nicer things will be available for those who can afford them. It's not far off what we're seeing, right? When if you have enough money, you can you can buy whatever you want, right? You can buy. I mean, it's it's disgraceful that we go. I've gone so far that people can be bought. It, it is it is to the point where there is all sorts of trafficking of human beings. This is the the, the power, evil power of money, that it, that people say anything has a price. Everything has a price. So it says there still be oil and wine that won't be harmed because these are for the people who can afford them, whose day's wages are more than the amount it costs to buy the bare necessities. So it goes on. 7 to 8 says, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked and there before me was a power horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So so let's just give an understanding of what that means. Today's population is around 8, 8 billion, roughly. I think it's approaching 8 billion as we speak, something like 7.9 billion uh, at the moment, roughly. A fourth of the earth is about 2 billion. Two billion people to be killed in the multiple ways uh, by sword, by famine, by plague, and even by the wild beasts of the earth. Remember, if there's a lack of food, even wild beasts are going to get even more wild. They're going to wander into places that they don't normally go, and it's all going to start. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to paint the picture so you know that this is very different. It's very different to what we are seeing today. There will be a tremendous death toll from dictatorships from wars from famines and other calamities described by the previous three horsemen. Even in our modern age, we've seen hundreds of millions killed by dictators and war and famine, yet all that will pale in comparison to the death toll coming in the wake of this ultimate dictator who is the devil. And he's, he's coming. Let it, let it be sure that this isn't just about imagery. This is why he's going to come. And then we move on, verses uh, 9 to 11, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These are believers now, but they're, uh, they're actually in heaven. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Number my own. Eleven. That's fine. This, what this represents, is those that have been slain because they stayed and trusted in the word of God. Their cry is to God as they themselves have been slain, and as they stand before a holy God, they cry for vengeance for those who have been martyred for God's truth. Uh, if you read this, uh, and I had this this morning, if you read some of the Psalms of David, and you read when he talks about his enemies, my goodness, the language is so close. 
when he talks about vengeance, that God has his way, God has his vengeance on those people who are against him. It's so close to the same sort of language and words that are used when David is talking about being hemmed in from all sides. So this is okay. The people can cry out, uh, and, and we see from the text that God is okay with this. God is okay with people crying out, not because their vengeance is that it's, uh, it's because of their their own lives, but because they are they've trusted in the Word of God. And God says we're just a little longer. What's really interesting uh, about this particular text is that we have in our NIV probably many translations the word number. And it says wait for the number to complete or to be done the full number. Actually, in the original uh, translation, before it's translated, number is not even used. Uh, what people tend to think this is about is about completeness of Christians. It's about when we are ready to go to God, when we're ready that God is, is finally going to uh, bring vengeance, as it were, uh, on, on those that martyred people. So actually, it, it's more like he is saying, wait just a little bit longer. Just a, you need to know. That I'm, that I'm here, just a little bit longer. And when you reach that completeness, then it's going to happen. Everything's going to change. Then we move on to verses 12 to 17. It says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens uh, sorry, receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains, and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? I find this section quite amazing, that even after we get to the fifth and sixth seal, uh, the world is falling apart. There's nothing left of the world, really, in that sense. There's no functioning of the, of the ecosystems, really, and, and of the society and the capitalism or whatever you want to call it. All these governmental structures have probably start to fall apart. And yet, what do these people do, the rich people uh, and the people who are in power, the princes and the kings, do they repent? No, they don't. They want to be hidden from the wrath because they want to hide their sin. They still refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. There's a commentator that says this, what sinners dread most is not death, but the revealed presence of God. This, this is what they are in fear of. That is the reality of the situation, that what they belittled and discarded is a little, little more than mumbo-jumbo, than nonsense, spiritual rubbish. There's going to be a very real set of events that will give no hiding place for anyone. Even when that occurs, as we've been reading, people will still care more about being discovered for who they really are and not, what the con not want the consequences of their unbelief to come back at them. 
I mean, that must tell you the depth of our sin. It must expose to us the depth of our sin that we will still, at all costs, hide or try to hide from the all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Didn't Adam try to hide from God after he sinned? Jesus himself foretold all of this to the disciples when he spoke about the end times. Matthew 24, verses 4 to 14 says this, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and deceive many. You remember he's on the white horse, looks a bit like Jesus, trying to look a bit like Jesus. This is what he's talking about. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars, but to see, to see it that you are not alarmed, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. We'll see that later on, actually talk about false prophets. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The stubbornness of human self-preservation in the face of an all-powerful God bringing righteous judgment is absolutely astounding. But the reason why I talked about sin is because it's not surprising. The reason why we talk about original sin and to always keep that in view is because it is not surprising that people will rebel against God. Jesus goes on to say uh, in verse 29 onwards, he says, Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. It's what we read. The stars will fall from the sky. And the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. They're, they're starting to mourn. We saw that as well. And he will send his angels for that trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. Where do we learn about the fig tree? Yeah, in Revelation. He talks about the fig tree in Revelation. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's important to know that this already exists. It's important to know that this has already been written. This has already been said by Jesus. It helps, and, and the grace of God is amazing that he's written, uh, that Jesus wrote, and then uh, God has shown us in Revelation. Uh, there's nothing new in Revelation. It has already been written before. That should be our encouragement. It's not some random set of things that might happen, or some Nostradamus-type prophecy. What John saw in the visions was already spoken by Jesus beforehand. 
But here is the reassurance of all that death, of all that trouble. Here is the reassurance we see in chapter 7. What God says in chapter 7 is that before we unleash the seventh seal, which is the worst of all, by the way, you think the six were bad, the seventh, the seventh is horrible. It is terrible. It is the end of times. But before he unleashes that, he's going to mark those that are the servants of God. He says here in chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Where did we read that? It was in Matthew. Holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the, the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Just to confirm, where we read that, Matthew 24, 31, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect and the four winds from one end of the, heaven, of the heavens to the other. So the big question, what does 144,000 mean? Hotly debated, accepted in, in many different ways. Uh, we, you might know that Jehovah Witnesses is a literal number of people in heaven, but now that is full up. Apparently, and now we have some secondary heaven, as far as I understand, on earth. Uh, it's, it's a very strange uh, situation that people believe in. Um, let me say this. There is a simpler way to understand the 144,000. Throughout the whole Bible, God uses numbers, mostly not to describe numbers. He uses numbers to, to symbolize something. So the strange thing we have to, the thing we have to question that is strange is why suddenly change from symbolic to literal? If we're symbolic all the way through the Bible, we probably should go all the way. The 144 is a symbolic number of completeness. 12 is used, utilized to symbolize completeness, perfection, and God's power throughout the Bible. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of Jesus. They're, they're not num random numbers, they're chosen because they point to God, they point to Jesus. Some people believe that the 144,000 are only Jews, are only the tribes of Israel, but that is uh, not something I can see in this text. The problem with that understanding is that if that is true, then there's no 24 elders, there can only be 12 elders. You see how things start to fall apart when we, we want to uh, look at, get to a certain conclusion, we have to start changing all the things before in other parts of the Bible. In reference to the 144,000, 12 is multiplied by itself and then again by 1,000, indicating completeness and perfection to the ultimate degree. If you read that every tribe is 12,000, let me tell you that not all tribes were 12,000. Some of them were bigger which if you take it literally, the problem with that is that some of the tribes weren't saved. You see how it starts to fall apart when we take things literally, when they're meant to be symbolic? It's a problem. Spurgeon says, The day shall come when first and last shall rejoin together in the equal blessing of the Most High. He noted the tribe of Dan is missing. 
Bible explains we shall never understand all the things of God. There are two tribes missing. Uh, in fact, Samson's tribe is missing as well. And that would suggest that if we go literal, then some people uh, who were in the tribes of God suddenly are not welcome in God's kingdom. Some of it just gets a little bit bonkers. We just need to stick with the text. There has to be a reason why there's always 12,000. There has to be a reason why there's 144,000. It goes on to say after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. Every nation, by the way, every tribe, every people and every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were, we were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches uh, in their hands. Verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Spurgeon described the great multitude, which no man could number, as the great gather, gathering of the Gentile multitude, redeemed by blood, numbered by God, never to be numbered by men, being like the sand on the seashore, innumerable, as in it can't be counted. There's an article on a website called Christianity.com. Um, I think I'm going to say his name wrong. Uh, Hank uh, Hanegraaff, I think his name is. He wrote an article about this, and he said, The 144,000 and the great multitude are not two different peoples, but two different ways of describing the same purified bride. From one vantage point, the purified bride is numbered. From another, she is innumerable. A great multitude that no one can count. Again, who can know the mind of God? But yet we see the figurative use of the whole number 1,000 is common uh, in the Old Testament usage, he said, God increased the number of the Israelites a thousand times. God keeps his covenant to 1,000 generations. God owns the cattle on 1,000 hills. You think that's literal? So God doesn't own the cattle on 1,001 hills? It'd be weird, wouldn't it, that God, if we were taking literal numbers here, that God only owned a certain amount of hills? It would be strange. And that's just to name a few. There's at least another six uh, uh, verses that describe other times God used numbers as a way to uh, symbolize something. But then it goes on. All the angels were standing uh, around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? So this is one of the elders uh, asking John, these, these, these people in white robes, who are they? Now, I don't know what's going on here. I think he's been a bit cheeky. He knows that John doesn't know. So John says this. I answered, Sir, you know. Lo and behold, he knows. He's one of the elders. He said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. 
He will lead them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The judgments let us know that God is just and the justice that he has, that is righteous, has already been planned out. Evil and turmoil and the judgment that happens has already been conceived. But they are not forever. Christ and his church are together forever in God's holy presence. When we finally get to Revelation 19, that's when things change. Big time. Who is able to stand then? Only the believer can stand before this great judgment, but only the one who is justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The believer can stand in the face of this great wrath of God because Jesus has already bore the wrath the believer deserved. He's already taken the pain. So as we start to see this arc of this great tribulation, the call is to trust in the revelation of the throne that Jesus is king and that your faith is sealed in him and by him. When we talk about there's nothing you can do to save yourself, Jesus seals it when we trust in him. He does all the work necessary to seal us into his family. So let's draw this to a close. We should not measure God by what we experience in the world. When we see these things happen, even when we read about it, we are not to use this to judge God, in which it is tempting to do, and say, God, why have you done that? Why have you unleashed all these things on earth? If you're a Christian and you've read a little bit of the Bible, you will know that the reason why you're a Christian is because we need Jesus, because there's nothing good in us at all. So we won't measure God by what we experience in the world. Rather, what we see in the world is in God's perfect and good plan for the salvation for those that believe and trust in Jesus. That is the point. It doesn't matter what system of bowls, system of seals, or system of trumpets you believe in. Believe in Jesus, for the time is coming when he will return. Let's finish on our verse that we always finish on. Because it's it's just so useful in these in these study in this study. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is from now until that time we need to keep doing this. Take every thought captive. Hold it to the Lord. Seek him in every single thing you do because it is not of the, the world that we need to use the weapons from. It is from the Bible. It is our armour. It is the thing that will keep us safe every single day. Let's pray and let's worship as we close our service today. Lord, we want to thank you that you have won the battle uh, that this is really just a commentary on uh, what we haven't seen, but what you already have done. Uh, what a strange concept. But Lord, uh, we all we uh, are called to do is to trust in you. As we read the seals, uh, we can see that it is by those who trusted in the word of God who went with him. 
who went to him. And Lord, that may, as you say in your word, that may involve persecution. Jesus himself said, for a time, you will be persecuted. Lord, we pray that our faith holds strong. That these times we see around us, even the lives we live every day, it takes nothing away from the struggle that we might have from day to day. But, oh Lord, may we have the kingdom eyes to see what is coming, that these little things in comparison are training us and getting us ready for the, the return of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we will cling, hold on to, firmly hug, hold on to our Saviour. Never let go. Lord, we pray that that word is true, that no scheme of man can cry us out of your hand. We thank you, Lord, that that is written in the word and therefore it is true. So, Lord, we want to praise your name now and just thank you for the awesome power, the work that has been done through the cross, through Jesus Christ who died and rose again, so that we can now have faith that whatever happens, whether we live or we die, we have been saved. We are to be with our Lord and Saviour. Thank you, Lord. Praise your name today. Amen.